0: Greetings. This is your professor, Jennifer Williams, and welcome to Introduction to African American Studies, Lecture 4. It's kind of entitled Introducing the Discipline, and it's a mixture of like kind of connecting all the theoretical things that we did before and giving a little bit more, you know, more definitions of exactly what African American Studies is. Uh, For most of this lecture, I kind of switched back between Africana and Black Studies. Uh, I don't have a good reason for it. Um, But it is connected a little bit to the fact that when we start to uh, talk about the history of what this discipline is, uh, then the history, early black studies departments were called black studies. And so I was doing reading of that. And so that language is now in my mind. But like I said, Africana studies is also valid. African American studies is the name of the department of LMU. So all of these terms I i i use interchangeably you can use interchangeably but if you mean something specific like a study of people who reside in the united states then african-american studies would be a little bit more accurate right so on this first page there's a picture here uh center for black studies at vassar college in the 1970s i didn't look up if this still exists i figure that if it does it probably doesn't exist in this location or uh you know because vassar college itself has expanded but it's very interesting to see this kind of like archival um, footage of the different ways that Black Studies was institutionalized at various colleges across the country. And so this is kind of one example of that. Um, we're going to get into the like actual events of Black Studies institutionalization in kind of the next lecture. But for now, you kind of see like a nice little picture about it. African people you know, standing outside of the storefront essentially getting their education on. Also, just for funsies, I changed the color scheme around a little bit. I don't know if I'm going to keep it, but that's, I was just trying something new. I kind of like the other bluish scheme later, but we're going to try orange today. So, lecture 4A uh, What is Africana Studies? The first thing I wanted you to go over is actually kind of going back a little bit Um, and your reflection number one is from the discussion that we had on the day that the fire alarm went off. I wanted you to have your own individualist thoughts since you didn't get to discuss it as a group. Um, But the statement I'm putting here is, if we care about the dignity of others, we should call them by the names they ask for us to call them. We should be open to ask what those names are and be willing to be wrong in our assumptions about what we think they are. Uh, and so I'm asking you, would you agree or disagree with the statement? Please explain your thoughts as thoroughly as you can, as well as before this class of intro to African-American studies, how would you talk about, uh, the names of people of Africana descent in the United States? How would you address their naming now? So just a little compare contrast of how you're feeling about names in general, as well as kind of the emotional and political impact of name usage and calling people certain names. So I'm doing a brief recap um and I'm just thinking like trying to tie everything together for from how a class started to where we are now. And so we've done already like a discussion of philosophy. That's basically the setup of how I was doing this class, right? Understanding concepts of worldview, understanding objectivity or the lack thereof, as well as this kind of political trajectory that I kind of have um over the course of semester as well as over you know how Africana Studies does it in general isn't aiming for the undercommons we are not the undercommons as your colleague asked but we move towards that kind of constant critique and not being um a part you know a cog essentially to the machine of the institutionalization that only aims to professionalize students and faculty and everyone else who's part of the academy, quote unquote, um, institutional, or sorry, to uh, professionalize them into the status quo, essentially. So we're all here just to get jobs to continue the system as is. So Africana Studies, as well as your professor, we're trying not to move that direction instead let's try to be a little bit more radical in our thinking more critical in our thoughts add to a discourse that doesn't keep the status quo at least the status quo being things that are like oppression of people um also talking about the significance of nomenclature and etymology and like i was saying this is a big uh conceptual framework in African American studies that we're constantly questioning the usage of words, we're constantly looking at language and how we use language and what language should be used, how you language affects us, how words affect us. Um, it's definitely a, a consistent uh, theme, a consistent uh, thing that Africana studies does. Um, There's other, of course, any other sociological, theoretical, uh, literary work is also done. But the significance of names is very, very important. And lastly, um, and this is kind of, once again, this overall thing that's going on this semester, the theme, the political aim of your professor, the political aim of this department even, is that we are engaging in a practice of critical theorizing like we're always going to try to think differently Um, we're always going to try to make sure that we're not just accepting the world as is and you know some things in the world may be good I don't deny that but we also want to make sure that if things are not good that we don't just accept them as well that's just the way it is instead let's break down how they came to be and let's break down if we can change and those kind of middle steps in between, you know, the history and the future. Um, And then at times, if possible, because this is the education setting, and as I said, we're only aiming for the undercommons, we may not be able to practice the undercommons, um, at times we're gonna do critical praxis. Praxis is just a synonym for practice. So any things that we can actively do to change our thinking, change how the world oppresses, particularly african americans and african people in the diaspora and africans continentally and just anything that we can do maybe we can practice these things mostly in this class we're going to practice thinking differently hopefully within your groups you practice talking differently um and if someone is able to bring up or even myself we'll think about other larger social actions that could be taken And this leads me to your reflection number two. So, reflection number two says, How can Black studies be Black studies? How can it exist as this kind of liberatory or critical or uh, radical, using these kind of big philosophical terms here? Um, how can it be Black studies at a predominantly white? And by white, I don't just mean a population, but also an ideology. Like I review was explaining before, that myth of objectivity, the worldview tends to be from a American-European worldview. Tends to be. So when I think of white, I'm not just saying white people, even though that does exist. There are predominantly white institutions of higher education, that population-wise, they are mostly white people, but also an ideology. Um... So how can it exist in that way? And then the second question is, you know, this is more about being specific. Um, What would be the challenges to being Black Studies in kind of an idealized form in terms of funding, in terms of people, in terms of ideology, in terms of scope? Don't necessarily answer all three, but make sure you consider those kind of more resource-based or intellectual-based aspects when thinking about the bigger question of how can Black Studies be Black Studies? So that's kind of all the background stuff. And so what's next? Next is the idea of making a discipline. And this is probably a little bit more uh, not a fun, so to speak conversation. It's not really historical. It doesn't necessarily have super relevancy to people who aren't going to go into the academy later. But it kind of sets some institutional institutional stage essentially for how it exists in the places that we're currently learning. Um, This is kind of those nitty gritty kind of things that you could talk to the dean um, of the College of Liberal Arts about if you wanted to. But what is a discipline, right? So as you know, there's disciplines or the word we use to describe the department's uh, theme, their focus, how they operate in kind of a larger global scale, right, are disciplines. So history is a discipline. Math is a discipline, Social or sorry, sociology is a discipline, right? So all those things are disciplines. Um, and the disciplines uh, kind of, once again, trace back to the medieval European um, or institutions that is the academy today. Um, so those are disciplines. Um, and so how does black study become that? Because black studies wasn't always institutionalized. It did not always have recognition of being a discipline um other scholars have talked about how black studies existed before black studies existed that kind of conversation which is true like if you go to africa and ask them did they have theories and paradigms and ways of thinking about themselves in any way uh that they'd be like yeah of course we did this all the time we hang out and talk on the side so and they had educational institutions not to like be flip about Their societies, but yes, they also had formal education institutions where people will talk and philosophize about their world. Um, Timbuktu is one of them. I said, you know, look those things up in a previous lecture. So yeah, that. Um, But then Black Studies in the United States, um, coming from a moment after a lot of these larger events of marginalization that we talked about—enslavement, segregation, etc. Um, so then it became a project, essentially, that aided the black uh, civil rights struggle. And so black civil rights struggle as well, black civil rights movement, were, don't necessarily limited to the 1950s and 60s. Anytime that black people resisted uh, their oppression, can be part of the Black Civil Rights Movement. So even during enslavement, people running away, people killing um, their slaveholders, all that stuff is part of the long Civil Rights Movement. So what is the Black Studies on that, right? So we have Black Studies being connected to the Civil Rights Movement, essentially, in its long form, um, and being kind of the intellectual... uh, leg of it. So there's always going to be like an actual on the ground leg, political leg, etc. This is the intellectual leg. So it's not just about how do we gain my civil rights by not sitting in the back of the bus, but how do I gain an ideology um, in academic spaces, and just anywhere um, in society, right? How do I get an intellectual foothold in society that doesn't demean black people that doesn't dehumanize them because that was the language um that african people had no history like actually look up that phrase you can find a few scholars that will say that's a true statement that they went to the africa they called it the dark continent quote unquote and therefore black people african people have no history it's more of that because a lot and this is very wide generalization. A lot of African societies don't have written forms of their language systems that the Europeans assume that they didn't think before, you know, the time that uh, they met. I guess um, so. That kind of has this very interesting, once again, uh, not you know, a worldview in which only privileges writing. As a form of knowledge or at least a legitimate form of knowledge versus oral tradition which happens in a lot of African and indigenous American peoples that they know everything that happened previous to the people who are currently there they just all constantly tell stories about it and that's how people learn the past not necessarily this written form that the Europeans were privileging even though they also have oral traditions but um, So, I'm definitely going way off track and digressing into history, because this excites me. Um, But going back to the topic at hand, making the discipline. The main questions that I really want to address here is, what is Black Studies? And definitely different iterations of what the what is question really means. Then it's what should Black Studies do, as well as who's Black Studies for? So those are kind of the questions that definitely people in the 1960s, when they were creating programs and departments and institutions of African-American studies or Black Studies, uh, were thinking about, as well as it was the... uh, other white scholars and people in the academy questioning and trying to invalidate the need or the desire by students, mostly students and community members for black studies in institutions of higher education. Uh, they use these kind of questions as well to say, well, you don't need black studies because, and they will give reasons. And I will discuss that more at the later part of a section or lecture 4A. So what is Black Studies? The questions I have here are what is its mission? Why does it, or what does it mean for it to be in the university itself? As well as, is it basically white studies with black faces? And the last question is kind of interesting because this is an internal conversation um, between black scholars uh, because there's a lot of people who don't necessarily like each other all academics don't like each other all people in black studies don't like each other you know this you don't like all the people in your school so the last one's more of an internal question that people are using and with some you know they have some points they have some evidence that not everyone who does black studies is for changing the status quo and so they use a framework to basically deny someone their blackness um or at least deny the their black studies program its blackness um but I also am going to say it's a valid question even though there may be this kind of very why are you questioning someone's self-identifying practice there's that um but there's some interesting analysis when you look at the Mission of Black Studies and the mission of people's programs, and are people effectively and efficiently doing the mission? So it goes to what is the mission? What is the mission of Black Studies? And this is kind of also an interesting conversation that is really often only relevant to disciplines that have been created post maybe the 1950s. So even education, because education departments are new as well uh, the discipline of education is new. Um, they ask of what their mission is. I don't know if history or philosophy ask its mission, or at least their mission seems to be more generalized of, like, human knowledge is good, therefore this is what we do. Um, but the missions of Africana Studies and other, uh, the critical theory disciplines, women's studies, gender studies, uh, LGBTQ studies, they all tend to have a more social justice- a critical engagement mission so i have a poem by lucille clifton lucille clifton was a poet uh, died within the last 10 years Um, and she has this nice poem i'm going to read it horribly but hear me out they asked me to remember but they want me to remember their memories and i keep on remembering mine And so this is kind of that mission, right? It's not just about history, though. It's not just about memories, but also whose ideas, whose concepts, whose way of the world should be yeah, I'll use the word remembered. Um, And for most of American history, it has been, as I've already explained, the history of white or people who call now white individuals, European individuals that has been what have been remembered those are the ideas those are the concepts that have been remembered um but Lucille Clifton says she's going to actively challenge that she's like I'm not going to remember their memories I'm going to remember mine and that's what Black Studies in a nutshell is doing it's about giving a voice to African people their ideas and their concepts and making that you know a not just a personal mission so not just a mission for africana people to remember because remember their own history that is definitely number one but number two is also for society to not be you know brainwashed essentially into only hearing one story and we already did this this single story the danger of it so their mission is twofold for most part to make sure that Africana people are well knowledgeable about themselves, as well as that the world is is knowledgeable and having accurate knowledge and truthful knowledge about Africana people. Because there's been a lot of misrepresentation, there's about a lot of um, ignoring, there's been a lot of erasure of African and African-American, African diaspora, and history, experiences, and knowledge. So this is a lot of reclamation work that's going on. So then for African-American studies, um, and I'm going on this next slide, it's kind of a historical moment. So in the 1960s, when they were entering students of African descent, uh, historically white institutions at the time, the questions were, what will they learn? and How will they learn it, the students? What are they gonna learn? How are they gonna learn it? Who's gonna teach these students? And how will they fare psychologically socially and culturally and those were valid questions at the time and they're still valid questions today um because it's you know if we're doing a student-centered approach to our uh, knowledge building essentially to making sure students learn but they're also not just learning the books essentially but also learning about themselves then how do we do it what do we do it and what is it what is it itself So for a new kind of part of this, I'm going to add some other voices, some perspectives uh, that aren't my own to give a little bit more, uh, you know, more (laughs) to this discussion.
1: no real moral basis for existence unless it is there to refine experience in the communities at large whether they be white communities or black communities the university is supposed to refine that experience it's supposed to analyze that experience and show it to the light of reason so that each man may benefit benefit by it now we all know for instance that black people the majority of them cannot go to college if they could uh, we wouldn't have to go through this kind of inquisition because the program would be passed. For 28 years, sociologist E. Franklin Frazier taught and wrote at Howard University. His book, The Black Bourgeoisie, is a lasting source of self-reappraisal for the
2: black middle class, the widow of E. Franklin Frazier. I don't know what students mean by being forced into a white image, because um, You've got to conform to the society in which you live. You've got to live within it or outside of it. You can't straddle a fence. Now, are you going to live outside of the American culture? Or are you going to live within it? As long as you stay in America, you've got to conform. What else can you do? Dominate it. Well, she has to an extent, but because she had to. But all while she was dominating, she was in the gutter. So I don't think that it was free, because anytime you have to lay with a white man to feed your family, you're not free. That's the white man's concept of freedom, his freedom, not yours. We have been taught for so long to be separate. They brought the slaves over, they took mama to Virginia, father to Georgia and the children to Tennessee. The white man taught the black man how to desert his children. White man would come in, not only would he desert his children, his children that he had by that slave woman, he would sell. They want you to be white-orientated and then somewhere in the back of your mind, if you just feel like it, you can store a little bit of black knowledge and black pride. You're supposed to be proud of George Washington because he never told a lie, which in itself is a lie.
0: So like some of the voices you're hearing, there was a status quo. And so the institutional status quo, as well as the social status quo was usually anti-black. And um, E. Franklin Frazier's wife talking about the idea of like society wants you to conform. What else can you do but conform? Um, but then there were students and as well as Amiri Baraka who were like, Yes, the institution, yes, the university is doing this, but do we have to? And giving that question, asking what African-Americans can do, how can they change? Because society was changing at that time. The 60s was, 50s and 60s were a moment of a lot of turmoil, a lot of changing. And turmoil not necessarily being always bad, right? Turmoil just showing that change was painful, essentially, because there was people fighting against it, fighting really hard against it. Um, but as students or, or at least as African-American students were entering these places, were demanding for culturally relevant information. Cause yeah, as we know today, we always learn about European individuals. We always, uh, privilege their information. But what if you want to privilege your own? Um, you, like, what do you have to do for that? And a lot of people said you had to fight for it. Um, so this also goes to kind of the psychological issues that we talk about um, with being a person who is marginalized in a white dominant society, um, because everything that's said in the white dominant society tends to be against you. And so imagine doing that on the daily basis of your education, right? And so to enter the university, black students would attempt to integrate emotionally and mentally, right? The kind of you become part of the university that's why we all like start to wear the clothes we have lmu all wear shirts we are nationalized essentially in our schools but for black students you know if you are the first generation of black students to go to harvard to go to yale to go to berkeley um then do you have to essentially commit a psychological and cultural suicide to succeed in those places do you have to not be black and Yeah, that's a a question that people asked. That's a question that people answered. Um, And some of them said, yeah, we have to submit to these spaces. We have to submit in order to succeed. Um, Were they well afterwards? You'd have to talk to them. But there was a growing trend that saying that this was psychologically damaging, that people would have to go and basically become white individuals even though they were marginalized and constantly would hear and be uh harmed essentially by negative consequences by mean students by racist teachers etc in higher education so they didn't want to do that and so i kind of have this next slide being like the questions of like what do i have or why do I have to be white to get an education? And why do I have to be white to be a valuable member of society? Like, kind of want you to think about this. This is more of a 1950s question. I know some people could apply it to today, but think about it in the past. Think about it before Black Lives exists, before all these other um, culturally relevant studies are existing. But basically, what does it mean to be racialized, right? So, like, the list of all the, or the, sorry, the event the class we had a couple weeks ago about everyone trying to be nationalized as American basically had to prove or not prove their whiteness it's that thing too so I'm going to go and become a student and be graded upon what yes you're being graded upon the knowledge that you know but because it's not just about the book knowledge but also about the cultural and national knowledge um then you also basically have to get a grade in being white And so the important step for Africana studies, the important mission was that we don't have to keep that, that status quo of in order to be a good student, in order to be a good citizen, you don't have to conform to white standards. So black studies will add that. Black studies will expand the basis of humanity expand the basis of americanness expand the basis of being a student at pick the name of your institution right and then we can claim space for blackness essentially in the institution which this fight in higher education also opens the doors for other stuff so women's studies is one of the number one um, benefactors to black studies That the conversation of women being valid members of society and that you can live society not as a man um, and succeed and thrive. Women's studies, you know, took that and was like, yes, women can do these things. Women don't have to work uh, in a system that is male dominant. Let's change things. another more uh, philosophical kind of idea about what does it mean for African American studies um, what is its mission is all these inst- or instances of power so this is kind of a framework here that I'm working on framework that is mix of Marxism so conflict theory if you heard of that conflict theory as well as Foucault um, Both of these are scholars that you'll have come across or have already come across in your uh, academic career. I'm just doing a very flyby, uh, you know, interpretation for this purpose. So you can look up those two authors, Foucault and Marx or conflict theory. But thinking about what it means for African-American studies to be in the university is about ideas of power. Who's in power? What's powerful? Etc.? So the importance of being a discipline, actually getting that title, actually claiming discipline, like this is a important institution of knowledge in the United States and I guess in the world, is because knowledge is power. And I know we say that, right? The more we but we do it on kind of an individualized level, that the more we know, the more we can use things for. It. Like things can change if we know about our past that kind of stuff right but we also realize that knowledge is institutionalized and this goes into why i'm always questioning how you guys feel about authority particularly classroom authority um that knowledge is we tend to only believe certain knowledge that has been degreed so we're more likely to say that the person with the phd in physics is a has more or better or more valid or more truthful or more thorough knowledge than grandpa who doesn't have the phd in physics grandpa has a phd in physics that's a different issue but you know grandpa who's been a car mechanic although grandpa may have actual like hands-on knowledge of physics we probably would trust that person with a phd more because they were part of the institution of higher education, and we trust that institution to produce knowledge. We trust them to provide all kinds of knowledges and accurate knowledge, objective knowledge to the masses. But as we are trusting them, you know, the system essentially of institutionalized knowledge with our knowledge, with producing our knowledge, so we've, you know, given them the keys essentially to drive the knowledge car, um, that means they have power. So knowledge is power, but then these institutions also have power. And so if the history of it, that history of these institutions have been white cultural dominant, then the white culture dominant narrative of everything, that knowledge base has had power those institutions that promote that knowledge base have been in power. So then this becomes a critique and this is the critique of Foucault. And there's a lot of words on this particular slide um, about the importance of being a discipline, but I'm gonna read like three of the main sentences that I've already highlighted. So the first off is Foucault doing the general thing. Every education system is, po- is a political means of maintaining or of modifying the appropriation of discourse with the knowledge and the power it carries with it. So that's basically what I said before. But then the disciplines, what we do specifically, these kind of fragmented knowledge systems that we like, history, math, social studies, etc. Um, characterize, classify, Specialize. They distribute along a scale um, around norms, they hierarchize individuals in relation to one another, and if necessary, and this is kind of the more important part of it, they invalidate and disqualify. And so like we're saying, if the institutes of the discipline, sorry, institutions of higher education with the disciplines which are part of it, um, they produce knowledge, but they also can tell us what is not knowledge. And we allow them that you know power to do so that we're like oh right if everyone in the institution says the sky isn't green and provides all evidence usually we will agree with that because that institution is a trustworthy um location of knowledge but then imagine like i said earlier the idea that africans have no history and that being and so if someone sorry comes up to whoever and is like, no, 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 they have lots and lots and lots of history, and here are some, the institution continue to say, no, it doesn't. And so history, like the Department of History itself, the discipline of history, can say what is history or not, can say that they can include oral history like the actual form as valid or they can say it's not as valid they can make a hierarchy of its value versus the written form so written form gets valued higher than oral forms of knowledge and that's okay because the history departments and the doctors of history we trust them to tell us that and then lastly um, these places, these disciplines are mixed spaces because they govern the disposition of buildings, rooms, furniture, but also the ideal, um, because they are projected over this arrangement of the characterizations, assessments, and hierarchies. So this is more just, like, a breakdown of, like, what they control. Um, so it's the material stuff, so the actual, like, if you go up to African American studies, you see that we all have rooms, you see that we all have, books on our walls that were paid by for the university not all of them some of them um you see that there are people there human resources we see that there is that kind of like actual physical structure as well as a discipline within departments um also have the hierarchical arrangements they can make boundaries they can define and that's what we as a society give them power to do know all this already like i'm just kind of contextualizing in a different form information that we've already done in class so the power of a discipline is the same as the power of worldview so the disciplines are able to create worldviews or maintain the worldview um, that they deem is necessary for them to maintain themselves Um, but it's also connected to the idea of the ordered universe that, hierarchy or that knowledge should be segregated, knowledge should be controlled, and knowledge can go in hierarchies. That some knowledges are more important, more valid than others. And this kind of goes to, we trust the sciences, or the hard sciences, and then people start calling them the soft sciences, and you see there's that language, why is one science hard and one soft, um, as well as the humanities, um, and then so forth and so on. Um, And then you can also, on present day, see that in pay scales. So business uh, faculty make a whole lot more than the English department. Why is there this, uh, you know, discrimination, essentially, between history or between business professors and English professors? You'd have to ask the Academy that, but it's definitely related to who brings essentially more money to the university or who has the access to more money the English professors are you know hanging out with artists and poets and people who read books and people who write not very good books so that becomes uh not as profitable and therefore their you know personal monetary value isn't as I don't know high <laughs> as those in the business department who can connect to businesses that's kind of just a basic material view of why there may be a difference between the resources of these two kind of disciplines but overall knowledge is segregated in the university and it's been segregated for a while now you may have heard these things like interdisciplinarity and we should start to become interdisciplinary that's very recent But for the most part, the structure, right, is continuing to be this very knowledge-segregated structure. So Azebo contends that basically every, all these disciplines previous to the 1960s, all these disciplines were existing, were white studies that all that kind of knowledge segregation that was going on that's not really a you know a good distinction of knowledge and really everyone's just doing some different form of white studies and black studies the to make it a discipline to actually understand its disciplinehood is because it has a different worldview than any of these other departments and so he says history becomes history because historians do specific things and manipulate variables and create upon ways hence it's a discipline likewise black studies becomes a discipline because the manner in which the content is approached and because of how we manipulate the phenomenon so when we look at an event when we look at people when we look at objects things that are created we in african-american studies do it differently period and those methods, those ways, those concepts, those things that we use are unique to Black studies and are not done in history. And so, this kind of conversation that Zebo, as well as a lot of other Black study professors during the time, were having was trying to get the boundaries. Um, your professor, Jennifer, personally is like, that's kind of a weird conversation, and it will shoot everybody in the fort later on. But for now, It was necessary to say, to prove that African-American studies, that black studies was unique um, in order to convince institutions that they had a lack of something. And, you know, that's a good way to, like, get what you want, basically, by saying that you guys are lacking this. That the institutions are lacking this. So that's kind of one way. But the other thing is that black studies and professors and students in the community, when they were asking that, were trying to reclaim intellectual space. They were trying to claim intellectual space in the institutions, but also reclaim that African people in general are intellectuals. Because once again, we're going to the racism of the United States, particularly at the time that black people don't produce, that they aren't. You know, knowledge-making individuals in the world. And so they were claiming intellectual space in institutions and reclaiming their own institution intellectual space, that they should be considered to themselves intellectuals. And they've produced history, they produce social science, they produce psychology. And those psychology, you know, those various things they sound disciplined, but we can call them a scope, a field, or a focus, just to not use that term. But the various scopes, the various ways of seeing the world, um, don't have to mimic how in how the history of European education, or American education, as it would later be called, um, creates So the next question that Africana studies were facing as well as may continue to face is, is the discipline, is what people are inspired or aspiring to create just white studies with black faces? And so Azibo, as I was saying earlier, he says that all the other disciplines are just white studies, right? Um, And so in this slide, you see that there's a picture of a lot of African people, African descended people standing in line. Um, and they're in front of this billboard that says the world's highest standard of living and there's white looking individuals with the dog hanging out the side saying there's no way like the American way. And so this picture was taken in 1937. It's during the great depression and people, the black people that you see here are standing in line to get rations for food and water. but one of the things that I thought was interesting, which is why I gave you a link to more information, that even though, yes, it was a, during the Great Depression and there was a lot of food lines um, for people who were uh, affected by the economic, the severe economic downswing at the time, this particularly was also connected to a flooding situation. And so similar to all the kind of hurricanes and what happens during those moments, this is part of kind of that lineage of how does the state respond to crises or natural crises created by natural disasters so the question of is black studies white studies with black faces um claim or azibo is claiming that there is a version of that and that he's calling it negro scholarship and as i was saying this is you know this is name calling um But he is trying to explain a phenomenon. Uh, During the time, Negro was probably a lesser term at the time, slur, or mocha was becoming a slur. But it definitely was fighting words. He was using it in order to prove his point. So he's saying that there's a scholarship that even though it is about black people, it is seeing the world through, as he quotes here, the blue eyes of the Saxon. So it still has a white European American worldview. But the population under study, the events under study would be black events, black people, black phenomena. And so he's saying that Negro scholarship or the people who are promoting Negro scholarship because his article, let me go back and say, is from the 80s. So he's coming under 20 years of seeing Africana studies programs be created and fall. Um, And so he was trying to show like some of the rationale, some of the reasons why these programs were succeeding, as well as why some of these programs were uh, not fulfilling, as I was saying, the mission Um, or at least the ideal mission of African American studies. And so he says they were stymieing and thwarting production um, and the institutions that are in the image and interest of African people. And instead, they are providing essentially an avenue for external penetration for outsiders, whoever they may be, in order to come in and basically destroy what's happening on the inside. So in the little next slide, if I'm pointing out the arrow here, showing that Uh, There are two studies, right? So there's a studies on Negroes and potato growing in South Georgia and the Negroes and the consumption of watermelons in Maine. And so even just kind of that phraseology. One, why would anyone be studying watermelon, the consumption of watermelons by black people? That sounds like even to our current eyes racist, but it was definitely a racist kind of thing then. Um, But is those, are those studies important? Um, are they valid to the experiences of Africana people? Are they valid even to the experience of white people, honestly? But these were the things that were even getting funded during that time. So when you look at the next slide, um, there is still scholarship. And like I'm saying, I'm not really down for using Negro scholarship. But there's still questionable scholarship that uses um, Africana people as the subject, but the, the framework around it, the way that it uh, tries to address or at least pretend to address a concern either of Black people or of the general human society, still aims to denigrate and maintain Misrepresentations and stereotypes of Africana people Um, and definitely should be critiqued. And I mean, we can critique it in terms of like alternative scholarship, but sometimes people are just like, you're wrong, and clearly breaking down (laughs) their personal, uh, you know, how they did the study, all kind of valid ways of scientific discourse. Um, This is an old article, two articles I'm going to show you are old articles um but this was taken this the title being why are black women rated less physically attractive than other women but black men are rated better than other men uh trying to you know science essentially um physical attraction um and therefore the article um is representing that black women you know you would read into it that black women are kind of ugly um but a lot of other people looked at the scholarship, said that he didn't have, you know, a valid sample size or something like that, or just the fact that science shouldn't be doing this. Uh-uh. But if you look at the article itself. Um, which the full article is on this website. It's just a picture because Psychological Psychology Today, the news source that was taken from, took it down maybe about a couple months or even less after that it was posted, after a lot of outcry of other people. So this is kind of this, like I'm saying, it's about African people, but its framework only aims to continue the misrepresentation of African people. The next article, I want you to think about it. Um, You don't have to do necessarily a written um, part of this, but in this moment, the next one, this was written in 2010. If you look at the corner, you see that Linda Young looks to be phenotypically Black. She may not be, but her dark complexion, we would read her as that. Um, It says, high achieving Black women in marriage, not choosing or not chosen. So if you read the whole article, um, it's got a lot of interesting data in it, talking about who, uh, who can find a mate, when they can find a mate, um, if you are a high-achieving people, how many other heterosexual, I assume, uh, people are available to you. So all of that. Um, but when you look at the study, like, it does look good on its face. It does seem to be uh, addressing a concern of Africana people. But can you think of some reasons why it might not fit into contemporary African-American States, why it may be continuing and producing other levels of, uh, even misogyny, even, um, continuing other depictions of like misrepresentations of black women, particularly misrepresentations of black men. Um, and then if you see her conclusion, At the end, Lindsay Young basically is like, black women are picky and they should open up their dating pool to white men. Uh, So I'm more asking you, right? What is this article? What is the root of this article? Right? What is actually she's trying to do? Um, And does it actually benefit Africana people? Does it actually solve their concerns? And I'm going to forward a few things Um, we automatically as a society tend to think that marriage is good. But why is marriage a good thing? Is marriage a good thing because uh, it does some social protections? And if it does social protections, then the root of the issue is why doesn't our society provide social protections to people in general in the fact that they have to get married? So it's leading a little bit away from kind of just like strict, this is about black people, but also questioning our society as a whole that we, you know, in order to talk about or in order to address the negative consequences of being a single black person, the way that Linda addresses it is like, well, you need to get married to be have, you know, better life. But instead, what if we had a society that protected single people or people with 50 kids? You know, like our society seems to be only valuing people in marriages, even though that family structure doesn't have to be the way it is and is only hiding other oppressive or marginalized perspectives in society. The next thing is the attempting to fit the discipline into a model of a discipline. So attempting to fit African-American studies as the academy has made disciplines already. And this is my own critique. Azibo and Hare both kind of address it a little bit. But the idea that Black studies um, as the institution of the university is separated to like right history, English, math, African-American studies then becomes... When you try to, like, you know, equate it to that, now it's part of that. So now when we have the language of what are the disciplines, we kind of can say synonymously, what are the departments, then they're all the same. And for me personally, that's kind of interesting. Because in reality, as I said here, it is kind of trying to fit the square peg in the round hole. That Africana Studies... Um even though it may have the structure, at least the material structure of faculty members, teachers, all the other stuff, um, classrooms, does it actually fit a discipline? Is it actually like history? Is it actually like philosophy? Is it actually like psychology? Or is it doing something different? And this is more, you know, rhetorical questioning here. Um, but I'm curious, and I- agree that it is the African worldview that makes it unique but because we want validity in a European space then are we watering down Africana studies are we watering down African American studies to be something that it's not in order to once again ask permission essentially from a white based institution your professor's kind of thought but that's really what most of the 1960s struggle was it was trying also to say we're filling a need we're protecting students um we are adding to the intellectual diversity of the world we're trying to add or not necessarily add but we're trying to legitimize our intellect in society but all these kind of questions also add to okay we need to fit here. How do we do it? How do you allow us the resources? You know, there was a lot of demands, but there was a lot of conformity as well. So in reflection number three, this is kind of not related to the previous discussion, but I want you to think about the academy and how Africana study fits within it and maybe how other people would be affected by it. So the question is, how does the presence of Africana studies currently affect the Academy of large? If it disappeared in some way, would the Academy remain the same, different? What's your thoughts on that? And going to a bigger question, does the Academy properly educate Africana people? So for saying that there is like a agenda of white studies essentially to systematically uh... Provide a certain perspective, a certain view of the world. Does the academy, even with Africana studies existing in it, properly educate, educate being a big word here, mind, body, spirit kind of thing, right? Does it properly educate Africana people who attend these predominantly white institutions? So... Once again, there's like, there's multiple ways of asking the what is Black Studies question. And I kind of am doing this last, but this is the long formal definition. And I'm going to just let you read that one. Um, you can bring it up in your course descriptions for your classes that your groups are making of how your course addresses Black Studies. So this is just a general stuff. It's basically everything we talked about before. That it's a discipline. It does Africana phenomenon. It has critical response. Um, and it... It emphasizes on agency. Now, I'm gonna talk about agency in a couple slides later, but it focuses on the agency of Africana people and centering Africana people in their own experiences. We've already talked about this. So, the bullet point version, same thing. It aims to look at the experiences, it aims to present an alternative worldview. It also looks at the impact of white supremacy on all human activity. It focuses on fulfilling the needs of the Africana community versus kind of ideas of knowledge for knowledge's sake. And it aims for liberation. And the liberation one, personally, is an interesting concept here um, because Africana studies, like the mission, does this, but maybe not all departments. And we kind of have to make that kind of distinction that the discipline as a whole is aiming for liberation. And then we have to ask question: what does liberation really mean? Um, because everyone's going to say five different definitions of that as well as what institutions of it so institution being departments programs think tanks other kind of centers for africana thought how do they promote the goal of liberation and it's not always going to be the same and some people may be lacking and not able to fulfill that mission as well So the next slide, you see that it's reflection number four, and there's a statement that one cannot use the same techniques to study the knowledge of the dominated as those to study the the knowledge of the powerful. So this is a basic reflection of what does the statement mean? Do you agree? Disagree? Do you have neutral thoughts? Why? All that kind of stuff. So let me know, and then let's go to the next slide. So I'm asking the question again, what is Black Studies? And from the other kind of slides that we were looking at, it's about the mission of what is Black Studies, as well as who's going to be impacted by it, as well as the institutionalization, all the kind of uh, people, faculty, room, staff, ideologies that are part of it. And so this kind of next section is a little bit more going kind of second level into its uh philosophy, as well as what it does as kind of an overall mission of individuals who practice Black Studies. So this is more bound within the research um, rather than found as kind of a public uh, action of faculty and staff and anyone who's part of it, students so one of it is the idea of moving from or moving africana people from the objects of history to the subjects of their history or their phenomenons or their culture um and this is what i've been talking about for the last few weeks of class the idea that anytime we talk about black history anytime we talk about the history of any kind of individuals in the world we tend to speak of it in a european american frame so, the other peoples who are actually part of it, we don't know that side of their history. When we talk about, as I already said, and one of your colleagues explained as well, we talk about indigenous history, we always start with Columbus. But indigenous history lasts much longer than Columbus. But the frame in which we're taught an in indigenous history really puts indigenous people at the margins and this is the language they put it the margins of their history and we center europeans we center columbus even though columbus if i asked you what is indigenous history columbus shouldn't be the center columbus should be that guy who came over after the fact. um and in reality the indigenous people of whoever they are should be the first names that come out of your mouth This is the same with black studies. Um, And so I gave a little practice one here, right? Uh, So it's a true or false. And I ask, did Lincoln free the slaves? And so if I'm asking from uh, African-American studies framework to center black people in the conversation, makes you think of the statement uh, from multiple sides. So for saying, once again, who's centered in this conversation? lincoln seems to be centered in the conversation of enslavement as well as the end of enslavement and how history has taught us this history also tends to do uh focusing on the actions of europeans the actions of americans and how they crafted the end of enslavement even having kind of an abolitionist conversation that doesn't include the black abolitionists um also is centering one group of people and kind of the machinations of everyone around it versus what were the enslaved doing during this time and so there are two clips that i want to listen to that kind of give a little bit more feedback or a little bit more a holistic view of the kind of true or false statement that i gave there
3: most people would identify lincoln as the principal figure in emancipation he's known to this day as the great emancipator and he is probably the person most responsible for emancipation. But emancipation didn't happen by the stroke of a pen. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had its limits. So a wide cast of characters is the answer to the question who freed the slaves. It involves legislators in Congress, officers and soldiers in the Union Army, and perhaps most of all the slaves themselves, who took matters into their own hand as the war crept closer and closer. Many of them ran away from their owners, some of them uh, fought back against their owners, many of them joined the Union Army. Um, So I think part of the answer is that the slaves freed themselves, although not by themselves, and not into a world of their own choosing.
1: Always understood that the premises of military emancipation were based on the understanding that the slaves would run to Union lines when the Union Army came into the southern states, that the way they formulated their emancipation policies presupposed that slaves would run to Union lines, and that the policy wouldn't work if the slaves liked being slaves, didn't run to Union lines, you know, uh, 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 and the like. And that's there in the very first policy that's formulated, uh, beginning with the contraband policy, uh, in late May, a month after the war begins, when the Secretary of War tells General Benjamin Butler at uh, at Fortress Monroe that he can refuse to return any contrabands who come voluntarily into your lines, but that he himself and his Union soldiers are not to go on to plantations and entice slaves off. That enti- anti-enticement policy Gets transferred into the instructions for implementing the emancipation policy uh, of the first Confiscation Act. The August Eighth War Department instructions make exactly the same distinction. You know, slaves coming voluntarily into your lines are not just contraband; they are emancipated. But you cannot go onto a plantation and entice slaves off. That meant that emancipation could only happen with the agency of slaves. The policy itself presupposed that the slaves would be agents in the process. And that's why I think saying, did Lincoln free the slaves, or did the slaves free themselves, is, misunderstands the understanding that both the slaves and the Republican policymakers and the Union Army had all along about how this process was going to go on.
0: So once you listen to the two um, talking head people, or at least talking voice people, um, you see that they're trying to provide alternative perspectives, right? And so in both of them, they express that basically the enslaved Africans freed themselves, that anything that was going on wouldn't have gone on during the Civil War period if the enslaved individuals weren't a part of the narrative. But usually we don't have that conversation. We don't add those histories or points to history. It's usually one day Lincoln woke up, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and we're good. Instead of while the war was going on, Africans who were very knowledgeable about what the political sphere was around them decided that this was the time that they could free themselves, that they did not have to be under the control of the white planters and left in mass the plantations. And the little um, the person that you're listening to that was talking about when the proclamations for the Union soldiers was they were not supposed to go into plantations and you know, free, quote unquote people. but they probably didn't have any work to do anyway, because the Africans all left. So that's a different story. That's a different framework. And it's also what Africana studies tends to do. It tends to have these conversations in which we look at the agency, look at how African people acted in history, how people act today even, rather than make it just about Europeans, just about white Americans in their society. So in the next slide, I'm asking kind of a future question. It's connected to the what is Black Studies, like What is it's like day-to-day function how it's existing in the academy but also we're kind of going to go to the future of it as well so what should it do what should it consistently do over time to maintain its ideal status right as kind of a liberatory framework as a framework that's constantly in critique And so the four things, and these aren't all of them, these are just the four that I'm giving to you today, is that Africana Studies or Black Studies, the faculty members, the students, everybody who's part of it, should, they should raise issues, they should educate the masses on Black issues, they should critique, as well as they should assist Black students who are in higher education. These are kind of four main um, points of what Black Studies should do. Um, and the next slide is another kind of quote by, I think it's by Zebo um, is that the political struggle for liberation and cultural integrity must be accompanied by an intellectual offensive. So this is another kind of additional point to the what you should do, right? And so it's doing all these other things I talk about It's being critical, but it should be an intellectual offensive. Um, and secondarily, It should also attempt to decolonize the education in this country. So, like I said, we kind of been talking about this the whole time. But the continual mission, like the previous stuff, is also like how it came to be, how it's structured today. But in order to maintain itself, like the European worldview maintains itself by keeping everyone thinking the status quo, the African studies and African worldview people should maintain a objective to decolonize the academy as well as be an intellectual offensive to any assault to black knowledge, black phenomenon, black history. Another thing, and this is coming from Hare um, in the 1960s again, he also is saying that black studies has two They should look at students as well that they should be responsible they have a duty and obligation to black students who are on campus because when black students go into the campuses as we said before they are assaulted by the white framework and often are assumed that they should conform to it and so black studies instead is saying that the youth um, who are part of black studies should get a sense of pride and a sense of collective destiny Um, When they take black studies classes and therefore it kind of like protects them in a way from the everything else that's going around them in the university. And secondly, for and he calls it a pragmatic approach, essentially, is it's to prepare the black students for how to deal with their society. So finding practices, um, having a strong ideology of self, having identity conversations, all that stuff about as well as how to help assist and work in and listen to their Black community. Because a lot of Black students are going to come from Black communities. And therefore, what skills, what uh, frameworks do they need in order to, and it's kind of weird, but return to their Black communities um, in order to uh, strengthen and liberate Black people. So it's the same framework that Africana Studies itself has to be a liberatory model or liberatory location for those in the academy to go for those who are outside of the academy, but also the students themselves have to gain some of that knowledge for their own personal work. And so in the next reflection, um, I want you to look at the list of courses in Harris' article, Questions About Black Studies... And I want you to pick one of the courses. So there's like three sections. There's like core and there's like humanities and social sciences. And then there's another section. And so I want you to pick one course and give me three kind of thoughts of why did you choose the course that you pick? And it could just be personal interest or I like the title. That's fine. What would you personally teach in that course? So if you all of a sudden yesterday woke up, you're a teacher of black studies, what would you teach? And then thirdly, how could this course and do some of the main missions essentially of African Studies? So how could the course that you're teaching decolonize the academy? How could the course you're teaching aid in black student education and education being the holistic education? And how could this course three critique western thought? So the last thing that I want you to know in this kind of section is that there's a backlash against Black Studies. That, you know, after this kind of whole conversation that we've been having, lecture 4A, about how Black Studies is good and it's positive and is useful, especially for us being at LMU and having a social justice framework, Black Studies is doing all that. But as Black Studies was created in the 1960s, and there's still some things today, there's a backlash against it. That there is... Um, still antagonism of its existence and it's constantly has to or at least the faculty within it have to prove that african-american studies is valid is necessary should continue on should still be funded and some of the things one of them particularly that some of your colleagues may have gone through i definitely have gone through is when we go back to the undercommons, right? The role of the university today in kind of a very negative sense is it's only for professionalization. It's only to continue to get you a job to be part of the status quo. So people question what's the role in black studies in that institution, right? For us, we're saying black studies or at least some versions of black studies departments are aiming towards the undercommons. So they're not even part of that process. But that's what outside institutions out or external people to Black Studies, deans who are working in the schools, will ask that question. And one of the questions is like, what job can you get with a degree in Black Studies? Right. That's the language because and it's a unique question that only happens, not only, but mostly happens for Black Studies students. And sometimes the retort from people who are in Black Studies and getting a degree in Black Studies usually is, well, what can you do with a degree in English, right? Um, But it's interesting that people are asking that of Black Studies because they're, you know, the mentalness about it is a lot of basically negative thoughts about what Black Studies could be. They don't think of it as a actual discipline. They don't think about it as a valid way to pursue knowledge instead they I don't even know what they're thinking honestly but they tend to once again devalue it um and they usually devalue it by asking this question um next it's there's a lot of attack that the teachers are not scholarly enough that they don't produce enough valid scholarship so therefore they shouldn't be teaching students um and two other ones it's just the idea that the other disciplines history teaches African people stuff that's social sociology and psychology they already have African people as a subject of interest and so it's redundancy and the academy apparently doesn't like redundancy in certain ways um, and particularly they tend to say in the cultural groups ways that that redundancy is unnecessary even though psychology and sociology occasionally have their own redundancies um, but that's another way that people want to go against the need for black studies. And lastly is a more contemporary, um, view, a contemporary backlash against black studies recently is that we are going beyond, um, the need for black studies that the oppressions and the critique of Western thought, um, is already, uh, in the academy it's already present and so these unique spaces such as black studies or Latinx studies um, are you know they fulfilled a role from the 1970s onward but we are post, you know we are past that moment Um, so people are constantly having to uh, restate the need for black studies give evidence again for the presence of discrimination within the institution as well as without the institution again show that their scholars are professional, as well as a lot of work goes into the fact that students with African American Studies degrees are getting jobs that are valid to the world that they are becoming lawyers, doctors, etc. But it's interesting that a lot of these unique um, antagonisms, right, are only towards Black Studies, even though you could validly talk about any department and ask this critique of any department in the university. But this also adds to the general um, critique or the general uh, challenge that the status quo has towards, you know, challenge some or other institutions such as Black Studies to challenge itself. So the status quo wants to maintain itself and therefore it will attack anything that is a challenge to it. So in lecture 4b, once again, we're having kind of a future thought of what Africana studies should be. Um, This is kind of picking up from the last uh, lecture in 4a that was going through the mission, going through its criticisms, going through the antagonizing behaviors of other departments and other scholars and institutions towards Black Studies. But now kind of moving on to how should Black Studies function? Um, how should it fulfill its mission? A little bit more, maybe not practical, but at least ideologically, how should it fulfill its mission? Because as I say at Black Studies, Black studies has been around for the last 50 years now, and it is just like any other thing in the world. It grows, it changes, it has to adjust and adapt to the times. So that's that question today. So the two readings that you have um, are reflecting of more recent, in the last 10 years of what, you know, is African studies fulfilling its mission. Um, But with the new things that we know about queerness, about Black femininity, about uh, how the academy even functions on its own as being a very occasionally destructive space to Black Studies departments, um, having that thought, um, as well as some internal fighting between Black Studies scholars amongst themselves of how the discipline should function. Those are all kind of these questions of what it should, the discipline itself, the departments that are acting upon the discipline or the mission of the discipline, how they all should be. So the reflection I have for you kind of goes back to the previous stuff, but once again, these are thought statements and write a little bit on them. Um, So the two questions I have are white teachers or the two statements I have for you are, white teachers should teach black studies. So this is a faculty question, right? Who should teach black studies? Who should teach black studies? And for specifically for this work, white teachers should teach black studies. Secondly, white students should learn black studies in a separate space from non-white students. In part two, black studies and other black students and other marginalized groups should learn black studies without white students in the classroom. So I'm wondering how you feel about these questions, where does your mind go when you hear these questions, and do you hear or do you uh, propose some positive to the statements I gave, some positive thoughts, as well as what are your reservations about some of the statements that I presented in reflection number six. So, like i was saying before there's an issue the fact that africana studies currently lives in the university and i gave you jennifer's you know uh, opinion about it trying to fit itself into the model of the university even though it itself is not you know systematically a, a segregation of knowledge discipline that it's a holistic discipline that is trying to find resources from higher education as is and so as it's trying to find resources it had to uh, provide evidence that it is similar to the currently existing disciplines the traditional disciplines as we call them but at the same time is not acting like those disciplines at the same time that's why I was saying that the under Commons is a great analogy for us we are in the University but we're not of the University and so As Africana study is living in the university, it's trying to pay its bills there, et cetera, et cetera. It, by design, fills the quota of diversity. And once again, this is one of those more last 20 years issue that universities believe that diversity is a positive part of their mission and that they want to show, um, they want to have evidence, right, that they do diversity there. Um and one of these things uh that azibo critiques about it though is that the university will say to their constituents either they will say to the black community in general or to their white shareholders or anybody that they are fulfilling the mission of the university by diversity by having a black studies program but when you look at the you know when you look under the hood so to speak of the program um and this author is saying it's taught by semi literate the Shiki clad demigods with nothing to offer but a militant black rap. And this of course once again I said there's name calling going on between black scholars, but if you look down deep on it, it's definitely like some black studies programs uh, were just put up in order to fulfill the requirement of diversity but doesn't necessarily fulfill the mission that they were populated by faculty but these faculty don't necessarily well one weren't trained in black studies um and two might uh sound good you know but not necessarily be fulfilling a more uh liberatory mission right so they'll talk a good game but are they actually doing it? are you actually playing the game so to speak um and this is one of those things of how it is institutionalized um so another thing and i've talked about this already is that as africana study lives in the university it has an educational structure it has people as concepts it's organization it has intellectual materials all these are the same uh needs ephemera pieces that other disciplines have but africana studies also has it even though its mission is you could say ideal and is greater than is trying to do you know basically change the world um but it still functions very you know with a very strict structure um in order to maintain its location and so the reality of institutionalization of Africana studies, what it should aim towards, but may be limited by because it is institutionalized in these places of higher education and those institutions of higher education have their own mission. Um, My thought to you, my question to everybody is Is the institutionalization of Black Studies corrupting it? Can Black Studies maintain a liberatory framework? Can it attempt to critique the academy? Can it try to decolonize knowledge if it remains in those places that are colonizing knowledge, that are, you know, leaving people to be professionalized, that are limiting knowledge to one framework? So the little mappy that's on your page here is like, is it the undercommons? Is it only aiming for the undercommons? Is it just adapting to the university or is it conforming to the university? What is the true future of Black Studies if it remains institutionalized in higher education as is? So the two articles that I talked about already, right? So it's the CAR, what Black Studies is not. I want you to focus really on pages 186 to 190 and those are kind of his list of uh what the black study is not the negative concerns that he has um second is Heinz a black studies manifesto um, and read all of that it's already a short piece so when you look at both Hines and Carr they both have an objective for what the areas of interest are for the future of black studies or the current um, iteration of black studies and they also have the concerns of how and what black studies should address. Carr understandably is a bit worry, wordy uh, he if you even hear him talk and I'm going to show you a clip of him uh, next uh, he's very fast and he writes the same way. Hine however she's down to earth and a little bit more basic um, but they're both trying to get at the areas of interest and area of concern for Africana State.
4: We also know that a lot of black academics now are uh, converting a lot of this conversation, the parts that they can stomach without getting put out of the academy, to chips that they can use to posture as radicals in these white spaces. I think that's what a lot of it is. They're not really radicals because they edit the genealogy. If they're in the living tradition, they're on the periphery of it, they sit and listen to as much as they can hear. Or better yet, they they, they use the archive. Oh, I went to the archive and now I know the history of black studies. Oh, I went to the archive, now I know the history of the black social. Media. No, 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 you're alive. You know, there's a meeting in this thing. I love the way, what's the dude he, he wrote about Garvey? Uh, no, he wrote A Nation Under Our Feet. Uh, Han, Stephen Yeah, yeah, Han, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. said he became interested in the Garvey movement because he wandered into a meeting in Philly at the museum and thought it was a, a meeting on the history of the Gary movement, and it, it turned out to be a meeting of the, the UNIA, UNIA. in North <laughs> He was like, oh, this is still going on? Here. Now you win the Pulitzer or something for a book that you wrote about something that you thought was dead and safely dead, which right, brings me to, right, to, to right, the right, point. Right, right, right. Alan Taylor wrote a book a couple of years ago. He came here to Howard. We jumped all over him because he basically wrote an echo of what Gerald Horn we both know and who's appeared on the Real News many times, you've had and interviewed in many different formations, mm-hmm. has been writing about for the last 30 years. In fact, the book that Gerald wrote, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, you, you get a gloss kind of echo of it with a book that Taylor wrote and won, I think, the National Book Award for oh, wow. You know, but the title of the book is where I want to go with it because it's what you're talking about. It's called The Internal Enemy. Mm-hmm. Black people are the internal enemy in white settler colonies and have always been. There are two major groups of internal enemies. One is the home team, the aboriginals of this whole hemisphere. Right. They are the internal enemy, but they got them kind of under control because you killed most of them and they still now you got them in their little bantustans or whatever. Right, right. The other enemy is the labor you brought here to work that you then racialized to make sure they didn't have any political formation with the poor whites you were screwing. Right. That's us, right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're the internal enemy. We have always been the internal enemy. We will always be the internal enemy. So, what Nixon was doing is following in a proud tradition that begins with the first president of this country, that in, c- c- continues uninterrupted to the current occupant of the White House, which is that this population, the population of non whites, must be managed.
0: So, you hear Carr talking about the black radical tradition um, and basically like the longevity of Africana people um, resisting. Uh, society or resisting how society is in a way that is against them is anti black. Um, but he's also talking about that is almost institutionalized with different presidents that they have to quote manage the black population, may make laws as well as social mores and norms that work in order to continue um, keeping a certain group marginalized. Because if you look at the history, right? If you look at enslavement if you look at segregation all these things that have depressed and demoralized essentially africana people you would think that they would be angry right that they would resist and maybe rise up and so one way that you can keep people down is by one incarcerating them um, but other means within society that keep people oppressed consistently and you make it normalized so Carr is kind of mentioning that. So this is his perspective of Africana studies as well as why he personally is an advocate for a certain more radical uh, perspective of transforming society. So he's definitely always saying that African American studies is going to challenge the established orders of things in the academy as well as without the academy. Hein She's a little bit, uh, she still is questioning how society works. However, her approach to it may not sound as radical as Carr. Carr definitely is attempting to get to the root of things, trying to address not just issues of racial oppression, but also general oppression of all people under an African frame. Hine, however, even though she's coming from a Black feminist perspective and will address what Black feminism is later on in the semester, she is kind of doing more of a progressive or a liberal understanding of African American studies in that she may not be going to the root of issues. She may not question marriage at all, um, as in the previous slide, she will still but she'll probably say that marriage is something that should be addressed rather than why do we even have an institution of marriage and why are we upholding it? But the, uh, specific concepts that she talks about are concepts that definitely have been used within social justice work. Um, in mass society, as well as in within African-American studies. So ideas of intersectionality, a non-linear framework, desport perspectives, oppression and resistance, and solidarity. These are all concepts and actions that uh, are both used by radical uh, people, but also in a liberal way. But she's incorporating that also into how Africana studies should function um and these are the things that they should look at as well because once again this is one of those internal conversations Africana Studies has been around for the last fifty years and in the beginning in the 1960s version Africana Studies even though as you heard by the women at Howard talking uh they had African women or Africana women being on the forefront of these movements. Uh, demanding their rights. However, some of their intersectional um, marginalizations, so the fact that they were women and black, weren't necessarily being addressed within black studies. So intersectionality adds that when we are looking at particular issues, we should look at multiple forms of oppression, not just being black, but also being black and black and dot 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 fill in the dots so in reflection number seven this is kind of just an all-encompassing question of everything that you've heard in in the lecture now that you've read azibo you've read Hare, you've read Carr, you've read heinz what does it mean to you now to actually do black studies And that's kind of the language that we can use, right? So what does it mean to do black studies? You can do history by, you know, reading historical documents. You can do psychology by looking to someone's brain. So how do you do black studies? So welcome back. This is lecture 4C. And lecture 4C is just about Afrocentricity. Um, Afrocentricity is probably the more formal word that we would use to describe the theory or the paradigm that centers Africana people. And so we know Black Studies does that, but we would actually call the framework itself Afrocentricity, which by the etymology breakdown, Afro, relating to African people, centricity, centralizing a thing, so centering Africans. Um... Afrocentricity, as its own theory, um, comes out of communication studies. So, Malefe Kete Asante, the person who actually coined the term Afrocentricity, has his PhD in communication studies. So, there's a lot of communication studies uh, concepts as part of it. And, well, this comes out of postmodernism. I'm definitely not going to go through postmodernism because there's a lot to that. Please look that up. Uh, but the shorthand here is it was a trend, the postmodern trend, essentially that we are no longer just there's not just one truth, and we're not aiming to find one truth, but we're aiming to find multiple truths. Afrocentricity comes out of that uh, intellectual tradition. So, in African study or in Afrocentricity. Asante particularly focuses on three kind of things, language, attitude, and direction. So when we're looking at a text, when we're looking at media, when we're looking at people, even, um, he's focusing on what is the location, quote unquote, was the location or if a person is dislocated. So what's the location of a person or are they dislocated? And located means centering in Africa, dislocated means not. And so you do this by basically analyzing, examining the language that the speaker is using. Like I said, etymology, nomenclature is important. What attitude does the speaker have towards the political and social issues of Africana people? And so if someone who is phenotypically Black is saying that they are uh, happy about the death penalty that kills a lot of Black people, we may have to question if they are actually Afrocentric. And lastly, what direction does the speaker place themselves in relation to making Africana people the subjects of their experiences? Um, so all these things three together, we can make a rough, um, you know, rationale that this person is Afrocentric or not. And mind you, this is definitely for a academic reason. So this is an academic theory and academic philosophy, but I'll go on more to why I'm saying this kind of like, it's only for academics uh, a little bit later. So Afrocentricity is a theory, a guiding philosophy that's greatly influenced how Africana studies has claimed disciplinary space as well. Um, like you're saying, it is the main foundation that said that when you center African uh, experiences phenomena etc that that is a unique position that other disciplines in the academy did not have and so it was able to carve space in intellectual knowledge by claiming that philosophy and particularly uh the phd so giving people doctorates in African and african american studies which was a great milestone in the claiming intellectual space in the higher education of black studies that happens in 1988 um asante specifically uh said at the defense of making a phd that the afrocentricity was going to be the guiding philosophy that that is what this discipline kind of holds as a foundation. Um, And the academics on the board that were defending or that were saying that uh, Black Studies should have a PhD program, they agreed that the phenomenology, that looking at phenomena and studying phenomena from worldviews was a valid means to create disciplinary space. So they approved the PhD program by approving afrocentricity so two main concerns of afrocentricity specifically which once again is all part of the foundation of black studies is that it's centering black people as a subject of discourse and it's rejecting universal perspectives of european discourse so it reasserts that anytime you address a person of africa their experience their history that you should give them a sense of agency agency and so that's the term i kind of mentioned it before and kind of went away real fast but i want now in this slide to focus on agency agency is an individual's ability and capacity to generate their own cultural and personal reality for the advancement of human freedom it indicates that the individual has a presence a will a movement that they can move freely as human beings. And we're affirming that Africana people are agents and they are people who can act independently and in their best interest. And I know like we probably understand that this concept is like natural. Like, of course, everyone has agency. It's a thing, human rights. Ah, um, And that's true. But when we read history, when we analyze certain debates, even debates that are happening politically today, that idea that this human has their own agency is often not, you know, included. Like we're talking about, uh, to give a more, you know, contemporary, uh, conversation about women's health, right? Um, that apparently a panel of men want to decide on the agency of a woman for her own body. So that's not giving women agency, right? That's taking away their agency when you are allowing people who are not part of their experience to decide on someone else's life. Um, so agency is constantly being contested. And if we even look at more just historical or the writings of history, this definitely happens often. That we just, or not we, but how historians write history often ignores or makes invisible certain people's agential thrust that when we talk about african-americans and we talk about the enslavement process we do a lot of passive voice on them it's all about what happened to them and on sometimes that is a way that we need to understand the world but we lose the other half of the story of how they fought back how they survived, how they lived, how they became, you know, the next generation of African people. We only, you know, we privilege their dehumanization more than we privilege how they maintain their humanhood. And so agency is that conversation that we definitely need to have. So Afrocentricity asks these questions, right? They're, what would Africana people do if there were no white people? And that's a, a broad question, of course, but more specifically, not just like, you know, disappear white people and what would they do? But can we imagine Africana people's lives, their personalities, if there were not European invention? And can we see that, you know, that they are living independent lives, creating independent philosophies that may be influenced by Europeans, but not dominated by Europeans. And I think that's the tough part for us, perfectly us who we were born or raised predominantly in American context, because we see the world through a framework of American society, particularly through our media, through just how we engage with each other, And so to ask even to consider that, well, what if America wasn't the way it was? What if it, you know, after enslavement even was including everybody in an equal format and didn't purposely make laws and social policies to demean, you know, a good percentage of the population? Can we even imagine that world? And can we even acknowledge the reality that Black people existed um, in a positive way? Existed as their own communities grew and uh, formed relationships in their own, with their own value systems, and were not always affected by European powers, or they found ways to shield themselves from the marginalizations. So like, you would go to the Black communities and I kind of, I don't know if I asked in this class or my other class, but you know, they had marriage systems, they raised children. Do we even consider those thoughts during, you know, horrible marginalization and oppressions? So we want to remove Europe, remove America even as the center mover of historical activities and instead assert how others... Uh, had motivation and how others acted within history, within the events that occurred around them. So I'm going to actually skip two slides and just let you read them. Um, Because once again, I'm just kind of repeating uh, a lot of things I've already said before, but centering African people and... Thinking about African, um, a perspective that basically is almost doing the impossible, but seeing African people as human and not making them periphery to any of the experiences that may have happened to them, right? So the thing that I wanted to kind of side note is that Afrocentricity. Yes, I'm framing it to you as a very academic pursuit that we would do this in the analysis of history, and the analysis of social and political actions. And that's one framework. Like we would write right about, how you know, we would write Afrocentric history. We would write an Afrocentric psychology. But Afrocentricity also is claimed by some people as a way of life. As some people, it becomes their political and personal ideology. It's how they identify themselves. And this comes, and you can see this in their performance of their identity, through the clothes they wear, through the hair they have, through even how they engage in relationships, what spiritual system that they practice. Um, Afrocentric uh, becomes that kind of term um in order to understand people who are doing that work as you know it becomes who they are rather than just kind of a knowledge based action. And I wanted to say that because sometimes the two get conflated. And yes, people who are Afrocentric in their lives may do African American studies. Like that is a actually a common phenomenon Um, But there's also some people in the world who live Afrocentric lives, have Afrocentric businesses. um, And that is kind of different sometimes. And sometimes there's a contentious relationship between the two, between the people who are doing academic studies and the people who are living it. Because of the idea of some people are a little bit more uh, dogmatic in their approach. Like Afrocentricity, in a way, almost functions as a religion for them as a you know I'm saying it as a way of life Um, and so the academics who are just doing it may write afrocentrically but may live not so much Uh, they see that as you know contradictory or at least the people who are afrocentric as their livelihood see it as contradictory so it's an interesting phenomenon I kind of want you to look up uh, stuff on the internet about it but just remember that some people claim it as a way of life, some people claim it as an academic pursuit, and those two sometimes meet and sometimes they don't.
5: During the period of our enslavement, African people were dislocated. Dislocated psychologically, dislocated economically, dislocated culturally, dislocated linguistically. We were in effect moved completely off of our own terms. And by being moved off of our own terms, we were decentered. The narratives of our lives were not our narratives. They were the narratives of Europeans, they were the narratives of white people. We participated in those narratives because our own narratives have been basically destroyed, decentered, dislocated, confused. And so consequently, the effect of this is confusion for the African population. Not only confusion for the African population, but after 1865, there were no people who came together and said, okay, uh, perhaps black people, the four million Africans who are free, maybe there should be uh, some process by which we uh, look at uh, what has happened, a debriefing of the 246 years, some uh, uh, possible way of examining what has happened to African people uh, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, history, in terms of psychology, in terms of spirituality, uh, what's been the result of 246 years of this this dislocation? So since we were not debriefed, and since we didn't have uh, anyone to process this for us, what happened was a degree of insanity. And in my judgment, this degree of insanity was best uh, seed in the educational system, because the educational system was not designed for African people. The educational uh, system in America was designed for white people, and it was designed essentially to create a situation where those who bought into it bought into a European system of education.
0: So the last clip of this section of lecture four is I want you to hear Malefica Tiasante. Um And he's just giving, once again, another, his way of talking about Afrocentricity and how we see the Afrocentric world um, through scholarship and the things that have happened to Africana people. Um, he, as I said already, he created the first... PhD in African American Studies in 1988 at Temple University. That is where I got my PhD from. Uh, Dr. Asante is my advisor for my dissertation. I'm going to see him in a few weeks, actually. Um, But he is that person. He's currently the chair of African American Studies and he continues to promote an Afrocentric way of seeing the world as well as being in the academy. That is his shtick <laughs> so when you read the article that he wrote uh, or that is an interview of him called why afrocentricity um we're kind of going to apply afrocentric thought just a little bit and so in the article he addresses a few things um but mostly people the article uh yancey or i think that's the um interviewer's name um is asking him about current police brutality and how afrocentricity addresses that and so the last reflection as well as the end of this lecture is i want you to look up a little bit of information about the la riots so the la riots occurred in 1992 i'm going to stop and emphasize that really quickly it's happened in 1992 how many years have passed since then right the la riots were not that far ago Um. And so arguably they were sparked by the acquittal of the police officers who beat Rodney King. And so I've given you a link. There are a lot of documentaries and videos about the LA riots. Please look up all the stuff. Um, But uh, most of media outlets, most historical documents, everything that uh, when we try to name the event that occurred in 1992, we call it a riot so first off what does the term riot evoke in you when you hear that verb you know when you hear that noun um what does it mean is it positive is it negative do you feel comfortable would you participate in it um why wouldn't you participate in it have you heard this term apply to any other event all those kind of questions then and this is that we're doing that center to marginalize question now does the term or who does the term riot privilege? Like, who sees the event that is occurring in 1992 as well as the events that have occurred recently? Who will term it a riot? Is it a riot if you're in it? Is it a riot if you're looking from your suburban home? And what actually is a riot, even you know, if the term riot is privileging the perspective of suburban mom in her house with her kids then you know what does that bring up what is the actual meaning second um in 1966 martin luther king stated that i think we've got to see that the riot is the language of the unheard right and what it and what is it that america has failed to hear is failed to hear the economic plight of black people and it's definitely has worsened over the last few years and this is 1966 and so martin luther king considered the word riot considered the idea and the concept of a riot from the point of view of the oppressed that essentially it was a last ditch effort from people who whose voices have not been heard by mainstream society so he kind of had a different view right than someone else that you may have considered in the previous question. So in recent years, however, there have been a push um, by various factions to call riots instead uprisings, to understand when we start to historicize them, when we look at them in the archives, when we write about them in media, instead we start using the word uprisings. So after reading the Asante interview, how do you explain the difference in using the term riots and the terms uprisings as a kind of Afrocentric thinking. And the next question is, what would we learned by this 16-year-old in the year 2028 if they read that what happened in 1992 was the L.A. uprisings rather than the L.A. riots? What difference of, I guess, knowledge or knowledge-making would that 16-year-old have? So... Those that have heard about the L.A. riots, what did you think they were versus what do you think this 16 year old in 2028 would think if they were called the L.A. uprisings? So that's the end of lecture four and lecture five is coming up soon.